Hey there, and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 39 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have Dr. Sherwood Ligenfelder back with us on the podcast to discuss um, leadership in the way of the cross. Just phenomenal to have um, him back and just to learn from him once again today and someone with wisdom and insight and experience. And honestly, I really appreciate his transparency. And that is so valuable. I learn from when people are transparent and share with their their wins and share with their challenges and just have a phenomenal time learning from him once again today. In, in an attempt to improve our audio on the podcast, I got a new pop filter. So you'll notice between minutes about three and seven that it, there's a little bit of crumpling. And um, that was my attempt. It was a failed attempt to make the audio better. Um, but please, I, I've tried to do my best to edit that out. But if you can't take the crumpling, if you just fast forward to minute seven, then it'll it'll go from there. But there's there's a lot of nuggets between the three and seven, three and minute instead of minute lark also. So do appreciate him. Do continue to send in your questions for Back Channel with Foth, and that's where we sit down with Dick Foth and and answer listeners' questions. And I just want to thank you once again for listening. I do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, which is Central Assembly of God in Cumberland, Maryland, and Pastor Doug Seaman, caring for each person, connecting each story, and celebrating each miracle. Well, there's no time better than now to get started, so here we go. Welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with our friend, Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelder, again to discuss one of, another one of his books. I'm so excited to have you with us again today. Thank you, Aaron. It's a delight for me to be with you again. And uh, I've looked forward to this over the past several days. So awesome. let's go. <laughs> awesome. Um, last time we talked about your first one of your first books. Now we're going to today we're going to look into leadership and the way of the cross. And um, I just wanted to jump in with a, a first question to ask about how do you define leadership and um, how have you come to this definition? OK, um, why is that important to you, Aaron? I think I, it is important to me because um, we all have, there's many di- different definitions of leadership that are out there. And, um, and I think our personal experience help, helps us define leadership. And so uh, as I read through your book, um, I just thought that was one question I wanted to begin with. Okay. Um, you know, in thinking about this, there are just so many definitions of leadership out there. Yeah. Uh, and you know, they're all valid. They're all reflections on this in in different kind of ways. But as I look back at um, both uh, leading cross-culturally and leadership in the way of the cross, I think that my my definition is the same in both books. Uh, They're phrased a little bit differently, but uh, in terms of looking at leadership, uh, in leadership in the way of the cross, I talk about leading is about people. Yeah. And and leading across culture, I defined it as inspiring people. Uh, in other words, it's about our relationships with people and how we deal with them. And the notion in uh, in the cross cultural leadership was inspiring people uh, who are from different cultures but constitute a community of faith, uh, then to follow you. Yeah. And so the the issue is you're inspiring people and they're willing to follow you. Yeah. And that's what leading is, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, now. I, I do understand that many people think about leadership in relationship to position hmm. and positions of authority. Uh, and so in leadership in the way of the cross, I focus a lot on position. Hmm. Uh, but, but I try to state in there that leading is not about the position. It's about the relationship with people. A position gives you authority. A position gives you uh, some kind of responsibility. A position gives you reporting relationships. uh, And all of those are a part of how we think about leadership. But um, the real question is, is anybody following? Yeah. Uh, And and the case study that I used in the opening of the leadership in the way of the cross is a case study of my own failure in which nobody followed. I made a decision, but everybody got what they wanted. A person that was part of the same. Yeah. And so uh, I looked back on that and I realized I didn't lead. Hmm. Uh, I made a decision uh, and I had a problem, so to speak, but I didn't lead. Uh, and did I not lead, but I actually alienated a group of people in my community that I never was able to lead after that. And so, uh, you know, the. Making a decision in a position is not leadership. Uh, 
if people aren't following, you may have solved the problem and gotten the decision in. But if the long-term consequence of that decision was that some people never followed me after that. And, and so in, in thinking about this, uh, leading is about people. I make another distinction in this book uh, between leadership and management. Hmm. And, and in a position that we have in an organization, we're always required to manage. Uh, mm-hmm. And manage has to do with all kinds of things that are part of the position. Uh, you know, but um, I quote uh, this, he said, there, there are basically three uh, issues in management that are critical. You manage for money, time, or quality. Uh, and, and so money, time, and quality, you're always doing management things. Uh, and when you give priority to one, the other two suffer. Uh, and so in the management issues of mission organizations, of universities, of, of businesses, uh, churches, uh, if you're making decisions about money, about quality, and about time, uh, they all together have relationships to each other. Uh, it's called the, the, the triple challenge of management. You know, <laughs> you, you have to deal with those in the management framework. So when you're preparing a budget, when you're deciding you're not going to fund this, you're not going to fund that, you might be uh, thinking you're leading, but you're actually dealing with management issues. Uh, and you're not looking at the impact that this necessarily has on people. Think that uh, leading is about people. Yeah, excellent. You write um, also that a challenge for leaders is to know themselves because in the times of crisis, um, we will default to strategies, values, and habits that have driven us in the, the past. Could you share a little bit more about this and um, how, how that, you've come to that, 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 um, that, uh, that fact? Well, um, <clears throat> I'm a human being, and so are we all. Okay, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're so diverse. I mean, the, you, if you think about it, I have uh, two sisters and a brother. There are four of us, and we're all different. We we have the same parents, but we're different, and we have different gifts. and And in terms of looking at this, we we all have we we have a genetic inheritance. We also have a family inheritance, a cultural inheritance that we have. And, and those things become a part of our whole life. And then we also have unique experiences that we grow up with. And those experiences can be positive. They can be negative. Uh, everybody's story is somewhat unique and different. But all of those things become a part of who we are. Um, and the good part about that is that as we mature, as we grow older, uh, we continue to learn. We continue to grow. But there's another thing that happens with maturing, and that is that we become confident that we know what we're doing. <laughs> and, and so when we become confident that we know what we're doing, we tend to stop learning. Mm. Uh, and, and we tend to then focus on what we already know and, why, and, and use what we already have some expertise at. And so in that, uh, you know, maturity is deceptive. Because when we stop learning, we really then stop growing and we we don't reflect yeah. uh, and we don't ask the, the questions that I try to ask in leading cross leadership in the way of the cross. So I've observed in myself that in a crisis, yeah. I, I default back to the same things. Hmm. When I was writing this book and I thought back about my first crisis when I became a leader at Biola University. That was a long time ago, 1987, yeah. 88, okay? Yeah. When I made those decisions, I have the same habits uh, 50 years later, hmm. 40 years later, okay? Same habits, okay? Um, I don't like conflict. Yeah. I, I got to get it done. There's a deadline, Uh and I'm a can-do kind of person. I can make a decision. Uh, and, you know, I have certain values about what are good and what are bad. I've been told these are things that I have to deal with as in my job, my position. Uh, and so when you have these things, you become confident that you know what you're doing. And so then you make decisions and you end up going down the same path that you've done over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, 
And when I went down that path uh, first uh, in 1988, uh, I didn't think I would do that again in 1998, but I went down the same path in 1998. I didn't think I would do it again in 2008. I went down the same path in 2008. And I began to realize in 2008 that, wow, you know, why am I repeating these things? Uh, why am I going back and doing the same things I did before? The consequences have always been costly. Hmm. Uh, and, and in looking at that, you realize that 20 years have passed. Hmm. Uh, and I'm still making decisions on the basis of time constraints. I'm still making decisions on the basis of, I know what I'm doing. I'm still making decisions on the basis of what I think people are thinking uh, and how I need to respond. And, and never really stopping to ask myself, why am I going down this pathway again? Uh, and when I first began to ask that, things began to change. Yeah, it's a good word. Good word. Before I hit the record button, we had a, I wish I'd hit the record button a little earlier. But uh, before we prayed together, I asked you a question about uh, covenant community. And what does leadership in a covenant community maybe look different than some of the leadership that we read in um, pop leadership culture and would you just mind just uh, sharing a little bit about what we talked about uh, before I hit the record sure um I guess Aaron what I would say is this is that um the when we become Christians we make commitments to a life in Christ that's different uh but in our ordinary day-to-day relationships we kind of forget about the fact that there's an unseen person with us, that Christ is present and that we've made a commitment to Christ and we've made a commitment to follow him. Uh, And instead of actually letting that govern us, we govern the things that we've always learned, the things that we've always had in the past. Hmm. And so um, it might be that I, I, I grew up in a Christian home and I can't fault my parents, but my parents also grew up in Christian homes and they gave me the same bad habits that their parents gave them. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I mean, I can quote them and, and I lived by those things. And then I learned along the way that, Hey, this is not really what Christ has called me to do. And so the notion of covenant community is a community in which we work on building relationships with each other that are centered in Christ and on Christ. Hmm. Uh, And so when we center our relations in Christ and on Christ, that can change the way we work. I shared with you the story of these people in the highlands of New Guinea who were just uh, working with a development missionary on selling strawberries. Yeah. And, uh, and Jim got so upset with them when they basically put bad strawberries into their boxes. And he trained them. He taught them, don't put bad strawberries. They'll get rotten when they get to the market. But some guy needs a little bit of money, and he doesn't have enough good strawberries, and so he puts bad strawberries in. And, you know, never thinks to ask anybody else for help. Hmm. Why not? Yeah. Well, because they never asked other people for help. They just took what they needed when they needed it. Uh, And so he needed a little more money, so he put bad berries in, and and that's the way they would have lived before they became Christians. Uh, So what does it mean to be the people of God? Well, the scriptures tell us that we're to love one another. Yeah. Uh, and if we're going to love one another, then what does that mean when we're packing strawberries and I don't have enough good ones and I need more money? Uh, well, you could think about that. You could talk about it. You know, hey, guys, I need more money than I have strawberries for. And, uh, you know, Jim has said, if I put bad strawberries in, I'm going to hurt you all. How can can you help me? Can we work together on this? Anybody have some extra straw, good strawberries that you can give me? Never had that conversation. Never had it. Hmm. Didn't think to have it. He never thought to teach them anything about what it meant to be the people of God and grow strawberries and sell strawberries. Hmm. You see, a covenant community is one in which Christ is at the center. And he makes a covenant with us. And so then because we're in Christ, he invites us to follow him and to treat each other uh, as as he would treat us. Uh, And so... In, in leadership in the way of the cross, I have a whole chapter on leadership as body work. Hmm. How do we lead the body of Christ? And to me, that's the most important chapter in the whole book. 
hmm. because it gets at this whole notion of what does it mean to be the people of God in the body of Christ? And, and how do we lead as members of the body as opposed to a position that I have as the senior vice president or as the senior pastor or as, or as the, the guy in charge of the medical project or the development project? How is it that uh, I can lead in relationship with Christ? And yeah. so uh, the whole notion of leading as body work it's different from leading as management. That's good. That's good. And that's a huge contrast. What are some of the challenges that maybe we want to drift um, towards leadership as management more versus leaders or not versus or, or the idea of leadership and as body work? Because I think in my experience, I would probably drift towards management because I think that's honestly seems easier and uh, probably less vulnerable than probably leadership versus body work. Is that, is that, am I, is that just you're, me? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You see the, the culture that we live in teaches us all about management hmm. uh, and, and basically gives us values that fit the management paradigm. Okay. And so we have a value that gives high priority to time. We have a value that gives high priority to quality. Uh, we have a value that gives high priority to um, the uh, pro product producing, you know, more more stuff. And so, you know, if if you and how and what it costs. And so we look at cost, we look at time, we look at quality, and we put those three things in in, in priority. Well, if we're going to work on the body work, it takes more time. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Uh, if we're going to work uh, to accomplish God's purpose, that's not necessarily cost-effective. Hmm. In other words, it, it, it could take more cost to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, how do we evaluate quality in relationship to God? You know, hmm. do we have God give us a bunch of quality standards that we work with? No. We get those right out of our culture. And so, um, you know, in... In, in the church, you have the quality of the worship team, the quality of the sermon, you have the quality of the Sunday school class, you have the quality of um, interaction between people that is of concern, you, you worry about being able to fund all the staff, do you have enough money, uh, are we being cost effective with the money that we have, uh, we have too many staff, all of those kinds of issues are all management issues. Hmm. Uh, and the same thing was true in a hospital. Uh, same thing is true in, in a clinic. Uh, those, I mean, uh, in your training, you know that you're really <laughs> invested in a doctorate in training for quality management. Right, for sure. You know, and and sure. doing things correctly. You don't want to do anything that's wrong. Yeah. So body work is so messy. Hmm. Hmm. And, and it is because people are so different. Uh, and the fundamental core value for body work is loving one another hmm. uh, and so that means forgiving one another when we break down in terms of quality that means forgiving one another when we don't show up on time that means how do we manage the issue that this project is now more expensive because of these this person that i have that really isn't really a top quality person hmm. i can remember thinking in my role as a senior vice president at biola you know, Lord, why did you give me these people? <laughs> you know, if, if I just had a better one here and a better one there, yeah. uh, it would be a lot more effective for me. Yeah. yeah. And then I read John 17. Hmm. And Jesus says, Father, I've not lost one except hmm. the son of perdition. Hmm. Uh, and they weren't all effective. Yeah, <laughs> there were a bunch of cranky guys. They asked all kinds of difficult questions. If you read John sixteen and fifteen and fourteen, you know they're debating with Jesus all these issues, uh, and Jesus said, "I haven't lost one." I'm mm. praying, Lord, get rid of this. <laughs> get rid of. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, because of my my expertise in management, you know, yeah. that it's really tough to manage the body. Wow. Uh, because the Lord gives you people that are not perfect, that have been forgiven, but that are still struggling to grow and mature and have different gifts. Uh, 
and oftentimes they don't agree with each other and and you have to wait on them to get them to the place where they're willing to follow uh, and uh so the, the there's just a drastic contrast between yeah. management and body work I appreciate it. That was one uh, out out of the notes, but I uh, I wanted to I wanted to wanted to ask one of the other uh, many thoughts from the book. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about today was how fear impacts a leader, and um, and how fear can impact his or her actions um, as they lead. I think you you share about dark fears that distort uh, vulnerability. Um, is what you share about that in the book. Would you would you share? Um, uh, with us today? You know, uh, I think that uh, I, as I look back at my own leadership, I always am afraid of, of looking bad, of, of doing things that would really reflect, hey, I haven't done a good job. You know, when I was growing up, my dad always told me, you do it right. Uh, and if you're going to do a job, do it right. And so I wanted to do it right. And I, I didn't want to do it wrong. And I was afraid that I might do it wrong. I was afraid that uh, I would do it in such a way that people would see me as a failure in this. And, and so I, I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of not doing it right. I, I basically was afraid of what people would think if I didn't do it in a way that, that would basically satisfy them. And, and so uh, those things are really traps. They basically lead you down a path that you don't want to go in. Uh, and there are other kinds of fears that people have that are not necessarily mine. But, uh, you know, one of my students at NIAC and the Alliance Theological Seminary said that the greatest thing that she feared was being alone. That mm. she, she just, uh, that losing the intimacy of relationship for her was just something that she didn't want as a pastor. And she felt the Lord called her to be a pastor and she knew that she would become isolated because she saw other pastors being isolated and she just just that just terrified her that the loss of the closeness and friendships would be such a terrible thing for her and isolation would be something that that troubled her i had another guy tell me that uh, he he just uh had to control things because he was terrified of failing uh, hmm. he the, that would the thing that drove him the most. He just was afraid of failing, and and so he would try to control things to make sure that he didn't fail. So in, in looking at this, um, these these fears that come into our lives are complex. They're many, uh, and when we sense fear, uh, we can be certain that this is going to lead us down a path that we don't want to go down. Uh, hmm. And fear of shame. Uh, you know, some, uh, one, some, many of my Asian friends, they said to be shamed was so terrible. Uh, and to the, the fear of shame just drove him uh, to act in certain kinds of ways. And, and, and he looked at the, the leadership failure that he had had, and he said the whole thing was driven by, I didn't want to be shamed. I didn't want wow. to be shamed in front of my people. I didn't want to be shamed uh, because I hadn't done it the right way. Uh, and, and so these things really just have a powerful hold on us. And, uh, and so failure and shame are two of the greatest kinds of fears, but there are others, you know, the, the fear of abandonment, the fear uh, of, of uh, losing relationships with others and people is one. And, uh, you know, the, it, it's, each of us has to reflect on what, when does fear come into our lives and how do we respond to it? Wow. Wow. You talked about, um, you said one of your students had shared that um, she was concerned that his being in ministry would lead to isolation. I mean, you've led Biola at a high level. Is that something that is, that, is that inevitable that if you lead at a high level that you're going to be isolated? And what's your experience with that? Because I do hear that you see that commonly, commonly in missionaries and in ministry that we do seem to drift towards isolation with uh, whether that be male or female. Um, how did, how did you um, deal with that challenge as a leader at a high level? You know, um, the, when I, when I took the job of the uh, academic vice president of Biola, I had no idea how isolating it would become. Uh, you know, and that was probably the biggest surprise that I had. Uh, the president announced 
um, you know, one day, I don't remember one, announced that I was the new, new provost and senior vice president. Mm. Uh, and my job there was the academic vice president, but the title was provost. And the very next day, I was having lunch with two faculty friends, and they distanced me. They said to me, you know, Mr. Provost, you know, mm. uh, we have to be careful what we say. We have mm. to be careful how we act. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I was stunned. Hmm. I mean, it, it, w- we didn't finish the lunch in the way that I felt safe anymore wow. because they were clearly intimidated by the fact that I had accepted this job. Hmm. And, uh, and then what I found was it not only isolated me, it isolated my wife. Hmm. Uh, that because she was my wife, uh, then people were afraid to serve on her with, with her on committees because she would talk to me and then I would know what she was, what they were doing and I would know what they were thinking. And uh, so it it was really a very, very challenging thing to work through. And ultimately I discovered it's a very lonely job. Uh, uh, In my, my leadership experience in academics, I found the Dean's job was less lonely than the, the, the provost job. Hmm. Dean's job, I had peers. I had other deans. And so there was the dean of the School of World Mission, the dean of the School of Theology, the dean of the School of Psychology. And so we were peers. And so because we were equal peers, we were all deans. I had friends. Hmm. I lost faculty friends, (laughs) but I had dean (laughs) friends. But in the president's job and the provost's job, there were no friends. Wow. No friends. Uh, And the president basically can have some friends on the board of trustees, but they're the group is a boss. Yeah. And so he can't be too friendly with them because they really always are his boss. Yeah. <laughs> and so the only other peers that he has are not local. Wow. They're other presidents. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, these kind of jobs, the positions that were given, uh, they basically do tend to isolate us from people because they're in hierarchy and yeah. there's power and there's a sense of power distance and, and isolation. Yeah, and, and pastor is the same kind of a job. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's one of the reasons I think that pastors are vulnerable sexually hmm. because they're, they're isolated uh, and they basically are put up here and people don't, don't feel comfortable being, uh, you know, intimate friends with them. Right. Uh, but at the same time, um, they're hungry for friendship. Yeah. And so you have a hungry woman who needs some friends and, 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 and needs counseling and so on. And, and you suddenly find yourself in an intimate relationship with a woman just because you need intimacy and you need friends and not because you really need her, but you know, it goes there. Yeah. And, and that's a tragedy because it, uh, it's it you know how destructive that is and for sure uh, for me uh, i'll be very honest about this i am an introvert uh, okay. i don't seem that way in conversations but being an introvert was actually helpful to me hmm. because i basically always had trouble making deep friendships uh hmm. you know i just i'm not outgoing my wife is a wonderful extrovert i married her because of that <laughs> and, you know, and we basically have a wonderful partnership and so i always had the intimacy that i needed with her uh because of the differences in our personality and that we basically complemented each other in this profound way uh and so you know i i could get along much better than she could with isolation yeah, And for her, my job was more painful for her than it was for me because wow. I, I had learned to live with that. Yeah. And uh, so probably enough on that. But. No, it's good. It's good. It's a good word. And um, I appreciate your sharing honestly about it. You, as you mentioned that, it just was something that picked my, my um, interest as we were looking through. Um, you shared just briefly there about power, um, power distance. And um, could you share um, how that impacts leader, leaders, um, this power distance? Sure. Um, I, I want to start with just a little bit of an introduction to the, the, the diversity of cultural ways of thinking about leadership. Uh, and 
there, there are two variables that kind of are universal. Uh, one of them is hierarchy and the other is equity. Uh, and they're always in tension with each other. And some people believe that for everybody being equal is the best way. And other people believe that there always have to be people in charge and we need hierarchy to get things done. Uh, and so when you put, you, we make choices then in terms of what we believe. And power is always associated with some kind of uh, relationship with others. It's, it's when people are struggling over control of resources or control of, of access of these kinds of things that power comes into place. So, for example, um, the, if we're concerned about a budget, uh, and a budget was always such a big deal in a university like the one that I had, they, they always said, you know, you guys control the budget and we don't have any say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in terms of budget planning, you had different, every department would plan their budget, every uh, division would plan their budget, and then the, the seminary or the college as a whole would plan their budgets. Uh, but there were always a few people that were actually the ones that were in charge of the budget. It wasn't really collective planning in that sense. Uh, so you, you have a hierarchy developing as you put together a budget for a whole big institution. And uh, th there are different ways to do that. Uh, and so if you basically believe that engaging people is important, you will try to have conversations with small groups about mm -hmm. budget issues and you will get their input in that. And then you'll take that to another level and you'll have conversation with the next level of groups and get input in that. Those levels are hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've never been in an academic institution, secular or Christian, that did not have that hierarchy. Wow. Uh, and ultimately, the final decision happened at the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and my president, Biola, said, I make all the final decisions on budget, period. Uh, wow. Now you present your presentations, but I decide when there's conflict. Hmm. Uh, so we knew that right up front. If, if there wasn't enough money, he would go back and say, come back again. You come back with less Sherwood. You come back with less Tom and so on. Uh, and, and so, you know, he basically was the arbiter of the whole process. And so this hierarchy, he was at the top, but it was a corporate thing. Uh, and so we had both the participation of the group and then the hierarchy that made the decision. Uh, all right. The, the, the issue of equity, if equity makes the decision, then the group has the power and there is no hierarchy. Wow. Okay. So you, you have, for example, I live here in Pennsylvania among Amish people. Yeah. Okay. The Amish people are classically people that believe in equity. Hmm. Uh, they don't participate in government. They basically all dress alike. They all uh, work in the same kind of farms. They basically have rules. You use the same kind of machinery. You, you always use horses and you use wagons and so on. And, and if you look at them and look at how they live and work, they believe that equity is the, the main thing. But every little Amish group has a bishop. Wow. One bishop who kind of calls shots. <laughs> when the, you know, and, and not necessarily, you know, the, the, the group will split if they disagree. But, you know, they, but he senses the group and he will be kind of the one there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, we have denominations that are built on that same kind of principle. Uh, for example, the Plymouth Brethren, they basically believe that elders run the church and that elders preach. And there are no ordained pastors. They're only approved elders. Uh, and so it's an elder-driven congregation, very much like the Amish is an elder-driven elder community. Uh, and, and they don't believe in hierarchy at all. Uh, well, the Presbyterians, the Presbyterians believe that the, the group is very important. Uh, and th there are different levels of the group. There's the, the session, uh, and then there is the presbytery, uh, <laughs> and then there's the hierarchy that's over the whole thing. And they've got rules about how they govern all of this. So it's this blending of hierarchy and, and, and this structure. Uh, and then you have uh, my, my dear friend from... Uh, he basically has argued that apostolic leadership is the only kind of leadership that's acceptable in the church. 
Wow. And apostolic leadership is the top. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and the apostle runs everything. Uh, yeah. And there is no such thing as group participation. It's only the ap- apostle. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so you, you have these variations in this process. Well, power distance is when you have hierarchy, it's how people view this distance in the hierarchy. Uh, okay. And, you know, apostolic leadership, leadership is the top and everybody else is down. Yeah. And, and the leader gives the decisions and we just do it. But he has delegated authority at different mm-hmm. levels. And so whatever the distance is, the people in the congregation are at the bottom. Okay. They just, they take the apostle's word. Uh, and in the Presbyterian, that you can't do that. Yeah. You have people in the session <laughs> making decisions. You have people in the presbytery making decisions. And, and you have a hierarchy that has some authority to make decisions. So the power distance in the, in the Presbyterian church is smaller than in the apostolic. Okay. Uh, and then in the, the Amish and the Plymouth Brethren, there's no power distance really, except for the fact that the elder uh, bishop is an old guy and so they respect <laughs> him and, and and they basically give him this authority and and they honor him uh but the group really makes the decision uh and so you know it the the degree of power distance is variable around the world hmm. and it, it, there's a guy by the name of Gerd Hofstede who's done research on this on he has a book called uh, it's, it's by he and his son and some others but it's called um, Culture and Organization, Software of the Mind. Hmm. And as he looks at this, he basically has 76 nations that he's done surveys among. Hmm. And he, he has this variable called power distance. And um, the highest power distance in the world in terms of this, this process is in Malaysia. Wow. Uh, the Malaysians basically give leaders tremendous authority and the employee, Hofstede uh, gets his data from middle-class employees. Okay. And he says, tell me about how much distance there is between you and your boss. Hmm. Okay. And there, there are a variety of questions. But the Malaysians see this as a huge distance. Hmm. The Austrians say there's no distance at all. Wow. He's just first among equals. Yeah. Uh, and so you have that range, first among equals or huge distance. Yeah. In the United States, we basically have kind of a middle-level power distance. You know, at Biola University, I was a senior vice president. The faculty put me up there and isolated me. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was, well, clearly, when I accepted the job, the power distance was there. I had no choice. Yeah. I, I, they just said, okay, you're up there, we're here, and we don't have conversation anymore. Wow. There's a distance between us. Yeah. Uh, and the president, he had distance between the president's leadership team and him, yeah. you know, clearly a distance between us. And yeah. I'm in charge of the budget. Yeah. Now he would say, you're in charge of academic things, Sherwood. Yeah. You make yeah. those decisions. Don't bring them to me. I don't want them. Yeah. You know, that's your job. Yeah. And so we had this division of labor. The guy that's the, the vice president for finance, he had a decision to put the budget together. And we had to submit to him. Uh, yeah. Even though I'm the senior vice president, still submit to the chief financial officer on budget. And so that's the way it, it, it worked. The power distance was always there. Yeah. And so that then has, that has profound impact on relationships, depending on what structure you're in, whether, like you said, if you're first among equals or, you know, there's a big distance and, and how that would affect, I, I would think that would affect work relationships, personal relationships and, and relation, relationships across the spectrum. So, yeah. Big you know, in lead, leadership in the way of the cross, I give four case studies of this this variation yeah. uh, and, and these types of leadership because the people that are out there working are working with all of it. Hmm. You know, I mean, if you're in Kenya, you've got a different power distance uh, in the national culture and even in local culture than you have in, in your mission teams. For sure. Uh, and if you're working in hospitals or in church planting, the power distance will be different in those places, depending upon professional qualifications and your 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 motive uh, equipping and discipling others. So it's and I think that's one of the challenges if you just hit on is in some days and in, in some conversations, you you can be 
those relationships, you can have all four of them in one conversation in one room, whether depending on how you fit into that role. You know, I mean, if you're if you have people from your mission in the conversation with the national church and, and all those different intricacies, it can have it's not like it's just um, monotonous or it's not just one singular one you're dealing with. You're dealing, as you said, and and it can all happen in, in one conversation um, and to being able to. Um, wade through that and navigate those um, has been challenging throughout my time uh, living overseas, for sure. So that's why I think why I found it uh, super, super valuable. One more, one last question for you. Um, termites of self. Um, I had never heard this uh, talked about or shared about until reading it um, in, in leadership in the way of the cross. Can you share um, what um, termites of self are and um and why these can be so detrimental. Um, well, let's see. It's, it's uh, in the book, I talk about all kinds of things that are termites, but let me try to sum it up this way. Termites of self are anything that uh, in some way or another comes between you and the Lord and undermines your relationship with the Lord and relationships with others. And, and so there can be a diversity of kinds of things in that regard. Uh, you know, um, fears. We've talked about fears. Fears can be a termite itself. How often does fear hit you? How often does it undermine you? And when do you follow your fears instead of following the Lord? Uh, you can uh, have hungers. Uh, and I talk about the hunger for significance, uh, you know, that's a hunger that I've always struggled with because uh, I always want to do something worthwhile. I wanted to, to, to do something that contributes. And, and so that hunger for significance can undermine you. It becomes a termite. Uh, there's, we talked about the hunger for intimacy. Yeah. That can become a termite of the self. Uh, there's also, you know, the, the kind of uh, needing a reward of some kind. Uh, and if you do things to get rewarded, that can become a termite of self. It, it's something that is a self-need that you have that kind of gets in the way of you following Christ uh, when you want to try to serve the Lord in whatever you do. Um, in terms of just biblical studies, for example, uh, you know, Saul decides to offer the sacrifice to God because Samuel doesn't show up on time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and Saul is deeply anxious. He's afraid. If he doesn't offer the sacrifice, then God will not bless him and he'll lose the battle. Yeah. So he's afraid. And so he does this foolish thing. Uh, and he undermines his relationship with God and with Samuel. Um, David uh, decided to stay home. He's getting old and tired of fighting. And so uh, he's sitting around and uh, watching out his rooftop and sees Bathsheba bathing. And, and you know, He's, he's still hungry for relationship. And even though he has already six wives, right. uh, you know, this is a woman that's very attractive and you, it destroys him. Yeah. I mean, it undermines him utterly and uh, it ruins his relationship with his sons. It ruins his relationship with his other leaders. And so these things are termites. They basically uh, surface in our leadership and, and they're, they are things that surprise us. We don't always uh, think about them. And, uh, and you know, uh, John Ortberg, for example, talks about a shadow mission. A shadow mission means that uh, I always was called to serve the Lord in a particular way, but my shadow mission was being applauded. Hmm. Uh, hmm. You know, I really wanted human applause. Yeah. And Ortberg is very honest about that. He says, I, I was good at things and I got applauded. And so I needed that. And yes. that became something that I pursued instead of pursuing the Lord. And so anything like this basically uh, leads us to ignore or resist God's word, resist his communication to us and, and lead us to reject advice and counsel from our community of faith. Wow. And wow. so they, and the reason I use the word termites is because Termites always work in tunnels. Hmm. They basically don't come out to the light. They, uh, I had this wonderful experience when I was working in the Pacific Islands. Uh, I had this little tiny office, and there was a whole shelf of Bibles 
They were all brand new. They had never, never been sold. Uh, and so one day I took the Bible off the shelf and opened it, and it was empty. Wow. The termites had made a tunnel <laughs> up the wall and then built a bridge across to the metal shelves yeah. and then a tunnel across the back of the metal shelf and into the first book. And then they tunneled into the first, went into the first book, ate it completely, went into the second book with another tiny tunnel, ate it completely, and every book on the shelf was empty. There was nothing wow. in it. Wow. And, and I thought about this in, when I was looking at these hungers and fears and the things that undermine leadership. And they're just like termites. Hmm. They sneak into our lives. They tunnel in different ways. And they basically always stay hidden. Uh, and we cover them up so that nobody can see them. But they eat us from the inside and they destroy us. Uh, and what I learned when I was in the islands is that the only way you stop termites was to break their tunnels. Hmm. When you expose them to light, they die. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so... If you want to get rid of termites, the first thing you do is just expose them to light, break the tunnel. Wow. Uh, and, and so in this issue, if we can identify what our termites are, then we break the tunnel. We bring them out into the public. We acknowledge this before the Lord. We acknowledge it with others. And by the light of the Holy Spirit, we can be set free from these things. Yeah. Uh, they, can, they will die uh, <laughs> when they're exposed to the light of the Spirit. But when we keep them hidden, they eat us from the inside and they destroy our leadership. So. One, one, I said that was the last question, but you share very openly that I was looking for applause and that was some, how do you, how have you found the courage to expose what you said was something that maybe one of the termites of yourself, how, how have you come to find that courage to expose that specifically in the Christian world? I think that at least the, in my life, it's more that we've been taught to cover up rather than expose. So is, and does that make, does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a tremendous amount of sense. You know, the, the this is a, a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, and I can tell you that um, I, in 2008, I had a sabbatical from Biola and I went to Fuller. I, I went to basically uh, the Overseas Ministry Study Center. It was not. It was at Fuller, actually. I went to Overseas Ministry Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. And during that time, I read a book by Ronald Heifetz called Leadership on the Line. Hmm. And Heifetz is a Jew. He's not a Christian. But in this book, he talks about the hungers that destroy leaders. Hmm. Uh, and these are what I'm calling termites of ourselves. Yeah. And he said, these hungers that destroy leaders... You can only deal with them if you expose them and if you basically put yourself in an accountable relationship with others. Hmm. And he said one of the best ways is to find these hungers is to reflect on a case study of your own failure. Uh, and so basically while I was OMN, OMSC, I sat down and I wrote up a nine-page single-space document of my biggest failure at Biola University. Hmm. Uh, and then what I did is I shared it to 20 international Christian leaders who were there hmm. on their sabbaticals. And I, I, I made a presentation. I said, okay, you have an hour to ask me any questions you want. And they did. They asked me all kinds of questions about this leadership case, about my failure, about why I did what I did, and so on. And then I said to them, okay, now, I want you to break up into five small groups. There were 20 of them, so four fives. Yeah. Okay. Five small groups discuss together and answer two questions for me. What false assumptions did I make and what opportunities did I miss? Hmm. Uh, and I said, come back in an hour and, and tell me. Hmm. I listened to them. I thought, where were they when I needed them? <laughs> and why didn't I ever do this before? Yeah. And, and why didn't I give people permission to talk to me and to, to tell me yeah. uh, these things? Uh, I made so many false assumptions. I missed so many opportunities in that case study. And all because I had these patterns and default habits and ways of doing things that really were destructive. Hmm. And they didn't, they didn't destroy me every day. Yeah. But when I had a major crisis, they just all came together in a way that, uh, you know, I, I basically saw this whole thing having just conflict across the whole university, not just with me. It hurt many, many people. Yeah. 
Uh, and and it, I realized I didn't lead, hmm. you know. And what I did is I tried to solve the problems, but I was trying to solve them with management tools. And I, I, I never asked the question, why did I go down this pathway? Wow. Uh, and, and so this is the critical issue, you know, saying, why am I doing these things? Hmm. And I can't see it. Hmm. And so I have to invite other people to help me to see it. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and asking this question, uh, you know, ask me tough questions. I don't mind. Yeah. Because that really helps me to see what I can't see. And, uh, you know, I, I went back to Fuller uh, uh, and I was a more effective leader for the next uh, years that I had. You know, I, I just learned more about my default habits. I learned more about my hungers. I learned more about uh, the, I didn't, that doesn't mean I didn't botch it again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, I, I told you that uh, one of my termites was this hunger for significance. Yeah. And uh, it surfaced again in my last six months. Hmm. You know, I did something stupid because I wanted to leave something important to Fuller. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's, why was I doing this? Yeah. Because I wanted to do something significant. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in it, I, I did some things that I ended up regretting, had to apologize for, had to repent. <laughs> but um, by God's grace, uh, we keep on growing. And uh, I hope I'm a better servant when I'm with him. So. Did you? Sherwood, would you pray for us that God will use what you shared with us um, today? Sure. Lord, I thank you so much for this privilege of talking with Aaron and Lord for the wonderful privilege it is to uh, reflect on a life that uh, you have blessed in so many profound ways. Lord, I look back over a lifetime and I just see so many gifts, so many opportunities, so many wonderful ways to serve. And Lord, through all of that, Uh, I have been the blessing, had the blessing of your acceptance, your forgiveness, your counsel, your guidance, and Lord, you're leading me in a pathway to follow you. So Lord, I just pray that for those that are listening and have listened to this in the future, Lord, that you would speak to them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them insights that you want them to have, that you would help them to see any termites in their lives that you want to bring to the light, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that this conversation would, in whatever way you desire, be a source of blessing and encouragement to uh, those that you call to serve you as servants in your body. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.